All right, well, we are in uh, lesson two, week two of a five or six week uh, Ruth series. And uh, last week we talked a lot about the very first 14, 15 uh, verses of Ruth and just set some historical context and got into some of the meat. But just to, to recap a little bit, you know, this, the story of Ruth that we're in takes place during the time of the judges. Uh, specifically, Ruth is going on right around the time of Gideon. You know, if you guys remember the story of Gideon in the book of the Judges. And there's this famous passage in the, in the book of Judges that says this. It says, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And just personally, I just got done reading Judges, you know, in my own normal daily Bible study. Uh, just kind of came up in my reading plan, and, and I got done reading it, and... And I have to say, as you get towards the end of that book, things just feel dark. I mean, it just it feels dark. It feels just chaotic. It feels just a lot of despair. You see infighting with the tribes of Israel. You see just stuff happening that shouldn't be happening. And it just seems, just everything feels wrong. By the time you get to the end of Judges, you just feel really odd as you read it. Something is off. And the more and more I thought about that, I thought about that, that passage of, of everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and I started wondering, you know, is that why towards the end of that book I felt the way I did as I was reading it, that you just feel like you're in a sense of chaos. And the only way I could, I could really think to describe this, uh, setting the scene for where we are in Ruth, but the only way I could really think to describe this feeling was Imagine that you've got thousands of people who are all up starting to run a marathon, and they're all kind of squished together at that starting gate that you see on TV all the time. Or if there's been anyone in here who's run a marathon, you know how that feels. But you've got all those thousands of people all pointed at the starting line, getting ready to get going. And whenever, whenever the gun goes off or whenever they start the race, instead of everyone running for the, the, the finish line, everyone kind of running in an orderly fashion for the finish line, what happens is everyone just starts running in whatever direction they think is right. Whatever direction, as fast as they can, they run in whatever direction they do, they say, this is what right in my own eyes looks like. And what ends up happening whenever everyone runs in whatever direction they want to, whenever they're all crowded together in that starting line? You know, they get trampled. You know, there's fighting, there's chaos, absolute chaos. And, and I love how sometimes in the Bible, you know, Sin is described as chaos, absolute chaos. When, when we do what is right in our own eyes, what ensues is chaos. Whenever we follow the will of God, he brings order into that chaos. He, he turns us around. He gets us to repent of the direction that we're going. He aims us all for that finish line, and we start to see order in how we're living out our lives. So I want you to think about, as we go through this story in Ruth, we're in the midst of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, in the midst of all those people at that starting line running up against each other in whatever direction they, they seem that they want. And we're going to use this very, very just vulnerable, non-important woman named Ruth. In the grand scheme of culture and humanity and everything, this, this woman who seems to have no importance in society at all the time, he's going to take that one woman and he's going to do some incredible work to redeem that situation and start to use the faith of Ruth and the faith of those around her to start to bring order into the chaos. And so I want you to think about today is our faithfulness, our faithfulness is a mechanism that God uses to bring order to the chaos. 
And as we go through this story, we're going to see two very distinct examples of faith today. One in Naomi and one in Ruth. Very, very different types of faith being described, but they're, but they're examples of faith that we can learn something from. And through that faith, God brings order from the chaos. So to kind of set the scene again, you know, what we learned last week, there was famine in the land. Uh, and Naomi and her husband were in Bethlehem, and they left Bethlehem to go to where there seemed to be food in abundance. They went to the land of Moab, which is about 50 miles east across the Dead Sea. And they were there for about 10 years. While, while they were there, they had two sons. I'm sorry, the two sons were with them and went with, went with them to Moab. While they were there, their two sons married Moabite women. Uh, one was Ruth, the other was Orpah. And after 10 years, uh, tragedy strikes. You know, uh, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. And in the midst of all of that, uh, Ruth and Orpah, neither one of them have, have had any kids and so both of the men, or all three of the men, are gone out of the picture in the family. The women are in a very vulnerable situation. There's no heirs. There's no one to provide. There's no one to protect. Uh, it's a very, very desperate situation, especially in the culture at the time. And we see, as we ended our story last week, Naomi was gleaming in the fields. And as she was doing that, she had gotten word that God had returned food to her people in Bethlehem. And so in a, in a matter of hope, she goes and she, she brings Ruth and Orpah with her and they start to walk towards Bethlehem. But then Naomi has these interesting lines where, where, where she really pleads with her daughter-in-laws, after really thinking about it, not to return to Bethlehem with her. She sees her daughter-in-laws, who are Moabites, who are not Israelites, that they have a better future for themselves if they were to go back to their own homes, go back to their mom and dad in Moab, find husbands for themselves, you know, try to have a life that would be prosperous because they're young women at this point in time. They're probably late teenagers or early 20s. You know, try to find a life for themselves. And we learned about a, a term, an ancient Hebrew term called hesed last week, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And this is a unique term that does not have a good equivalent in the English, English language that pretty much joins love and loyalty, commitment and sacrifice. Right? It's a very uh, unique word. And we talked about how Naomi really practiced that whenever she was sending her daughter-in-laws back home. She's saying, you know, she's saying, I think you guys would have a better life without coming with me. Although for her, for Naomi at the time, the best thing in the world for her would be to have these women return with her and, and, and try to help provide for her in her old age. She says, no, I love you so much, I want you to go back, even though this hurts me. That hesed, that, that love and loyalty combination is something that was, it is one-sided. It doesn't require reciprocity uh, to be exchanged. It's a type of love that we need to understand because it's a type of love that we need to practice. So that's where we ended our lesson last week, right at that moment whenever, whenever Naomi is telling her daughter-in-laws to go home, pretty much to go home. And so now we're going to pick up the story, uh, the first part of this lesson today. We're going we're to pick up in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. At this point in time, Orpah, uh, the other daughter-in-law, kissed Naomi and went back home. She listened to Naomi's advice and she went back home. And it's something we shouldn't fault her for. I mean, that was probably the most logical thing to do in that situation. So here in verse 15 is where we're going to pick up. And I'm just going to read 15 through 18, then we'll get into the lesson. It says, And she, talking about Naomi, and she said, See your sister-in-law, 
has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts from me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. These actions from Ruth, this decision that Ruth makes is pretty remarkable. Right? And you know, last week we talked a little bit about love being a decision. You know, love not necessarily is this emotional you know, um, outpouring of any type. Love really, in the way we need to understand it, is a decision. It's a commitment. And Ruth makes a massive decision at this point in time. It's a very remarkable thing that she does. In the first stanza of this, what you see is Ruth commits a, a few things. The first thing she does is Ruth commits herself to Naomi. She binds herself for life to Naomi in this point. That in itself is a pretty big deal. You know, think about this. Like I said, Ruth, the best thing in the world for Ruth is for her to go back to Moab and find a husband to marry uh, in, in that society at the time. But she binds herself to Naomi. In that second stanza we just read, Ruth commits herself to Naomi's world, you know, to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. You know, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. That's a big deal. She's Moabite. You know, they did not worship the, the God of Israel in Moab. We've talked about that a lot. You know, she's, she's making a commitment to the God of Israel and to the people of Bethlehem at this point in time. And then that third stanza, stanza, what we see Ruth do, which is, you know, a bit more remarkable, and you have to really make sure you read this, is she commits to live in Bethlehem for life, right? She says, she, you know, death will be the only thing to make her depart. You know, Naomi's a bit of an older woman at this point in time. You know, if this commitment had been shallow that Ruth was making, you know, she could have gone and committed to Naomi for the rest of Naomi's life and then gone back to Moab. But she's making a commitment in front of Naomi and in front of God that she is going to be with Naomi's people for life. She's going to remain in Bethlehem for life. The best possible thing for her is to go home. But she makes a pretty radical decision. And not only does she make this decision, but then she goes, and let me just read the, these words uh, one more time. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She says, not only am I making this commitment, but I'm going to have God put a curse on me if I do not fulfill this commitment. She is making a covenant you know, at this point in time, something that the, the Israelites at the time would have understood this oath that she is making. She is asking God to curse her if she does not fulfill the, the commitment she is making to Naomi right then. And we can listen to this and kind of realize this all seems like a pretty radical, crazy thing for her to do. Uh, but it also, you know, you know, may not be out of line as, as we've read Ruth before, as we've read the Bible before. It may not seem like such a big step of faith as to what it really is. So what I want us to do is just to help everyone in here really understand how big of a step of faith this is that Ruth t took. I want us to compare Ruth's actions right here to another hero of our faith. I want to compare what she did to Abraham, right? And Abraham, we all know a lot more about than we know about Ruth. Where we've, all been, we've all had a lot more Bible lessons around Abraham than we have Ruth before. So I want you to do, if you can, your tables for just a minute, is I want you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, 
verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Appoint somebody at your table to just read that text out loud at the table. And I want you to compare the situation that Abraham is in, or Abram at the time, that Abram is in at the time, that God makes a big ask of Abram, and what Ruth is in at the time whenever she makes this big commitment. Remember, they're both making a commitment to travel from where they are into the same land, right? So they're both making a really big decision. What's going on in Abram's life, and what situation is he in, and what's going on in Ruth's life, and what situation is she in? Compare those two whenever you read the text. Talk about it for a couple minutes, and we'll come back. I've seen all kinds of, I've heard a lot of really good discussion at your all's tables. I heard the great Chris Bennett describe somebody's love as a love like a German shepherd. So um, I can only imagine that was a compliment. Uh, I heard no political discussion. So good job, guys. Uh, Good job here. So we're comparing Abram at the time to the decision Abram made to really be obedient and to walk in faith with, with that initial covenant with God. And the decision Ruth made, you know, because a lot of scholars will really contrast their two faith and kind of show how Ruth's faith was almost on par with Abram's faith. And I kind of want to do this as an example. And I know I might, you know, it might be a complete heresy for me to say this, but I'd almost like to make the, the statement here that I think Ruth's faith is far more radical than Abram's faith uh, at the time. And so did you guys pull anything out where you saw the comparisons between the two that you thought were worthy of conversation? Anyone have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. Uh, Abram was commanded to leave. He didn't have to leave. Yeah, Abram. Yep, so what I might say on that was Abram, he said Abram was commanded to leave. So Abram had a very clear direction from God given to him by God. Yep, yep. Somehow, some way, God, God talked to Abram, right? Yep. 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 So he had, it was, there was clarity, right? There was absolute clarity. I'll come right back to you. Yep. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting because Naomi, right before this happened, said, the Lord's fist is against me. Yep. And Ruth said, I'm going to follow you, and, and the Lord can place a curse on me if, if I don't follow you. So it was like already going in a bad situation. Like, yeah, it's not, but, not, but not rosy. Anyway. It's not a rosy situation, right? There's not a whole lot of promises on the other side of this equation for Ruth. I mean, I'll come right with you. Yeah. Well, they both oh. had to go to a strange country. That takes a commitment that you have to be love. Nothing yep. could be any stronger than to do that. And I think that's a lot of that's that's the reason what he said was they both had to go into a strange country to a foreign place to them personally. I think it's a lot of that's a reason why a lot of scholars will compare these two faiths together. Yeah, Gene? Uh, one of the uh, big differences uh, maybe in the faith there would be that um, Abraham didn't really know where he was going, and Ruth really knows where she's going. Yep. She's going into to a place that's in famine. It's you know. Yep. It's, 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 so we're Team Abraham over here for Gene. Is uh, yeah. So he, what Gene was saying was, was at least Ruth kind of knows what's happening and what the situation is as she's going. Yep. Well, you have to remember, Abram was God's friend. Yep. I mean, he was blessed by God, and he got all these promises to go. Yep. So really it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of an easy decision for him to make. Yeah, I'm leaving my family, but I'm taking most of my family with me. Let me kind of break down this text real quick. So if you go kind of what you're saying, if you go to Genesis chapter 12, he said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. To your point, this was a commandment. This was a, you know, 
Ruth didn't get a voice in the sky or any, any angel appearing to her telling her what to do. Right? This, it, it was a decision based on the faith that she had seen from Naomi. Uh, she's making a commitment to the Naomi's God with only the knowledge she has from Naomi and Naomi's husband at the time and, and the sons. You know, she's making a commitment to that God without anything else there. Then in, if you go back to Genesis, it says, uh, God says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's saying, hey, you go and, and follow me, you know, take this act of faith, and there is a blessing on the other side of it that I'm making very clear to you. And it's just not a small blessing. It is a great blessing. Ruth has no promise as to what's going to happen to her. Not to mention, honestly, if, if she's logical at all, she has to be going in knowing the situation is bleak, as Chris said. I mean, she's going in knowing there may still be famine. It may be a little better. I'm a Moabite. We, we've talked about all the history between the Israelites and the Moabites. It's not like someone's going to go in there and, and want to marry her. The Israelites try not to marry outside the Israelites. She doesn't have a prospect for a husband. She has no way to stay employed. I mean, it's a tough scenario she's walking into. Uh, and it says, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and in him dishonor you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then it says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with, Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, so he had his wife with him on the journey. He had a company. And Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, so they had lots of stuff they were taking with them, and that they had gathered, and that the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So you look at this, Abram has possessions, he has servants, he has his wife, he has his family, he has a blessing from God. He's being told to go into a strange place, and it is a massive, massive step of faith what Abram does. We are all beneficiaries of the faith of Abram, right? But I want you to see, Ruth is there's nothing supernatural about Ruth, just like there's nothing supernatural about Abram. There's nothing supernatural about that woman. She did not have the possession. She did not have the promise. She did not have the blessing. She did not have the family. She did not have, you know, in that culture, Abram is a strong man, apparently, from all we know about him. He probably could have been successful just about wherever he went based on the fact of who he was, the type of man he was. Ruth is the lowest of low in all society, yet she makes this commitment. So I, just, I, I want you to see this, that this is a radical, radical step of faith, and it should be really encouraging to us. Because no one in this room, to my knowledge, except for possibly Major Duck, is supernatural, right? No, no one here you know, is, is supernatural in any way. Uh, just like Ruth was not supernatural. And God did incredible, incredible things through her faith. Like I said before, he used her faith as a mechanism to bring order to the chaos. God used the faith of Abram, later Abraham, to, to make great nations, to make a multitude of nations. And then what did God do through Ruth's faith? I just want to make sure I make this point kind of clear up front where this whole story of Ruth leads to. If you think about this, if you, if you flip for a second just to the very last part of Ruth, what you'll find uh, is that something pretty cool happens in this story. Next week, we're going to talk about a guy named Boaz, who, just a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't ever read Ruth before, Boaz become Ruth's, becomes Ruth's husband. And through the union of Boaz and Ruth, we see that a son is born, a son named Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David, right? 
through the line, the faithfulness of Ruth, God not only brings King David, he not only fulfills that prophecy of that fourth oracle of Balaam that we talked about, but then through the line of David, he brings us Christ, right? Through the faithfulness of this vulnerable Moabite widow, right? God is able to bring us Christ. So I, just, I think about that every now and then. I just want that to be a bit of an encouragement to us all is God did incredible things through the faith of Abram, the faith of Ruth. What can he do through the faith of O.A., the faith of Jim, the faith of Charlie, the faith of Jim? You know, just, what can he do through all of us? And the faith of, faith of Rahab. You, you, go back, you go back through all of that. Yeah, you go back through Boaz's family tree, you find some pretty interesting characters, don't you? It's really cool to see how God has orchestrated all of this. And we don't always know. This, is the, this, this decision that Ruth makes is the first example of faith in the story I want to talk about. And we don't, we don't always know how God will use these acts of faith. We may not even know how it plays out on this side of eternity. Uh, but God's word never comes back empty, right? And as we are faithful, he does amazing things through that, right? And we just have to kind of trust him in it. It's a very encouraging thing. Now, that, all that being said, this is a big leap of faith that Ruth makes, and we're probably not all going to be in that situation this week, right? We're probably not all going to be destitute Moabite widows who have to make a decision like Ruth made at that point in time. Uh, but we're all going to have, I promise you, we will all have opportunities to demonstrate the next type of faith that we see in this story. So I want to transition uh, now to Naomi, where Naomi comes in into the re- next part of this passage. And I want to start first by looking at Naomi's reaction to Ruth's just leap of faith that she took. So if you just kind of think about this for a second, you know, Ruth has given up everything she, she knows, given up her family who was still alive, right? Her mom and dad are still alive. She's given up her prospects, all that, you know, and she has committed herself to Naomi. Now, if you're Naomi in that situation, how do you think you would react to Ruth? Like, what would be your first reaction? You're on that road to Bethlehem. Ruth makes that beautiful commitment before God to you for her life. How would you react if you were Naomi? How Thoughts would, on that? What, what would people think of me for bringing a Moabite home with me? Man, you've got a tough heart. I mean, what, what do you, hold on. Somebody give me a good, like, like, like how, don't you think you might be a bit compassionate? Like if you were Naomi, you know, maybe not be thinking too far down that road. But I know if I were Naomi, at least I would hope I would do this. If I was Naomi, I think I'd give her a pretty big hug. I would tell her that I was really, really appreciative of that massive action. Tell her again she didn't need to, but be like, I am so thankful for you. I will do all I can for you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Give her a kiss. You know, just you know, embrace. You know, some, some type of embrace. How does Naomi actually react? Read, read verse 18 real quick. So let me go back to that. Read verse 18 in this passage. It says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, talking about Ruth, she said no more than in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Naomi doesn't talk to her. She makes this massive commitment and Naomi just stays silent, right? Absolutely silent. There's no embrace. There's no compassion. There's nothing there to tell Ruth, I know the commitment you're making for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. There's nothing silent treatment as they walk 50 miles to Bethlehem, right? Which could have been an easy journey regardless. So last week, I just wanted to tie a bow on the lesson from last week. We talked about hesed, right? That, that, that deal that is a commitment or a combination of love and loyalty, commitment and sacrifice. We talked about how that was an unbalanced equation. Reciprocity was not required to show that kind of love, right? 
we have to make sure that in those situations where we're like Ruth in that situation, we make these massive commitments, these massive steps of faith, we're not always going to get a thank you note on the back end of that. I know a lot of you guys serve in here on a daily basis or a weekly basis. You serve in a lot of different ministries, a lot of different areas of our community. You serve in your families. You don't always get a thank you note once you're done, do you? You know, I know, um, I, I know that uh, uh, I've served in a capacity in some areas with some you know, more difficult people. And uh, you give a lot. You give time. You give energy, sweat, tears, all these different things. And you just get nothing in return. And I always try to correct people. I hear a lot of people in the church say this a lot. They'll say, hey, I, I don't really go to that Bible study anymore. I just wasn't getting much out of it. You know? and, or I stopped volunteering there because I just wasn't getting much out of it. And, and I have to kind of correct them and challenge them and say, are you going that so that you get something out of it? Or are you going in there to show love? Right? Are you going in there to show your commitment, your faith, the same way Ruth did, the same way Christ did? Right? We have to kind of check ourselves in those little acts of faith we make that we're not doing it so that somebody comes and gives us a pat on the back. Anyway, that's my mini lesson on the side of this lesson. So let's move on uh, before I get down into any places. Yep, yep. I see the emphasis of that I at first blush was thinking that it was a commitment to Naomi of the roots. But then when I read it a second or third time, I think she's making a commitment to God. She is. She's going to serve Naomi's God and her sister-in-law is going to go back to her people and serve their God. So she was rejecting the God of the Moabites and accepting the God of Bruce. And so it wasn't just total loyalty to Naomi. It was her compassion and love. And although, like in Abraham, God spoke to Abraham. So that's kind of the emphasis. His loyalty was, no question, directly to God. But in this case, the emphasis I hear all the time, it's a emphasis of loyalty to Ruth, I think it's just as equal or more so uh, a loyalty. I feel like you're reading my notes, because uh, that is literally the next I'll thing I'm going to talk about. Well done. Talk yeah. about no, it's good, good. So it's a very good observation. The observation here is, look, the story on its surface seems to be a commitment of Ruth to Naomi, which it is. It's a, it's a, that's a, it's a beautiful story of Ruth's commitment to Naomi, but no one has the power to show this kind of love under their own will, under their own strength. We talked about this whenever we went to, when we studied Philippians, right? It, you know, God is the, the person who provides the energy to accomplish his will. We don't have the power to run this marathon on our own. It has to be God working through us for these things to happen. What we do have to be able to do is just keep stepping one foot in front of the other in faith. So before Ruth can show this kind of love to Naomi, she first had to make a commitment to the God of Israel, right? She had to show that love to a God who was foreign to her before she had the strength to make this commitment. I think it's a really, really good point. A lot of times we will idolize or romanticize love, right? I think think in our culture everywhere, we talked about this a little bit last week, we romanticize this notion of love. And we have to understand the love we're talking about, true, authentic love, is a love that can only come because of the power of God working in us. We first have to have faith in God before that love can be shown. So it's a, it's a, it's a very good uh, observation. So let's transition here, and I want to I talk about another example of faith that we see in this story. So we're going to read verse 19 through 22 uh, and kind of see how Naomi practiced faith practices faith as well right here, but in a very different way. Let me read this to you. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, it's interesting they say, and the women said. The men don't say anything. The women are all talking in town as they say now. Anyway, uh, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Which, just as a side, last week we learned that Naomi means pleasant, uh, beautiful and pleasant, you know, kindness and pleasantness, something to that nature. And Mara means bitter, right? So she's saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I wonder how she really feels. I wonder how she really feels. So, so uh, now, I'll, I'll say, on that note, let's all step back for a moment and realize Naomi is grieving, right? And so let's be a bit empathetic towards Naomi right now as we read this text. It's kind of like whenever you read the book of Job, everyone just wants to just criticize Job's wife. You know, as Job's wife is saying, just curse God and die. Everyone just wants to give her a hard time. Like, she also lost everything she had in all of her children, right, in the whole ordeal. So Naomi's lost a lot, and she is obviously grieving. Her, her world's kind of uh, collapsing around her. And she has a very specific complaint to God. If you read this, she says that whenever she went away, when she left Bethlehem originally, it says that she went away full there in verse 21. And I thought that was empty. She, it says she went away full and she came back empty. And, and those words are not there by accident. Remember, Naomi left a land of famine. She's saying, I left a land of famine full. And she's talking about her family. She went away to a place of Moab where there was grain and food in abundance, and she came back empty. Right? It's just interesting how God's economy works in all these ways. She's saying, I am now completely empty. And she believes that it's God's hand that is working this. And that's something I want us to kind of drill down on here in a little bit. Naomi's belief and her faith in God never wavers in this story, regardless of how bitter she is. She believes that God is the Almighty. You know, she says it twice in that passage that we just read. And she understands a couple truths about God. We see it come through pretty clearly. She understands that God is Almighty, that He is sovereign. Uh, another way to say that, she believes that God is in complete control. You know, she is not criticizing God on that note, she believes He's in complete control. She also believes that God is a good God who loves his people, right? Those are two truths that we need to believe about God today as well, that he's a God who is sovereign and he's a God who is good, who loves his people. She's, she's dealing with those two truths though right now and realizing that in the midst of that, of the fact that she worships a God who is sovereign in control and is good, she's in absolute agony. She, I mean, she is heartbroken right now in this situation. So she's trying to understand how to deal with that situation. And I, I was trying to think about a way to describe this situation um, as best as I could. And the example I, I came up with is I want you to all imagine that you're like eight or nine-year-old kids for a moment. Just imagine that you're eight or nine-year-old kids and you're playing on a basketball team. For some of you guys, it's harder to imagine than others. Some of you guys feel like you're eight or nine-year-old anyway. So, so, it's, uh, so imagine you're eight or nine-year-old kids, you're on a basketball team, and your dad is the coach of that basketball team. And now you know a couple truths about your dad. You know that he's in charge of that team. 
that he's going to call the plays, he's going to put the player rotations in, he's going to set the strategy, he's going to determine how we practice. He's in charge of that team. You also know that he's a good coach, and he's going to do all he can to make sure the team wins the championship. You know those truths about your dad. And then lastly, you also know that your dad is your dad and that he loves you, right? Those are the three truths you know about in this situation. And you find yourself in the middle of the championship game, and your dad puts you on the bench, right? He tells you to rest the bench. You're not going to get to play in the championship game. Now, this didn't happen to me because I was a pretty awesome basketball player as a kid, right, Dad? You know, it was uh, – now, my dad, just as a side note, he only coached me one year. He was the assistant coach. And, and what was your record as a coach? 13-0. and 0. Uh, He's undefeated as a coach, so well done. Uh, but just imagine that situation. You know your dad is a good coach. He's going to try to win the game for the team and that he loves you. And yet with all those truths, he puts you on the bench during the championship game. Wouldn't you just, yeah, well, in that moment when you're on the bench, right, you don't know the outcome, aren't you just a bit heartbroken, right? You're just, you're just heartbroken. You're like, Dad, you love me. You you, you want me to be happy. You want me to, to, to be a part of the game. And he goes, no, I'm in control. I need you to sit right there, right? It's just this heartbreaking scenario as a kid. I want you to kind of understand what Ruth is dealing with right now. She's, she worships an almighty God, or Naomi's dealing with, an almighty God who is good, yet everything has been taken from her, and she has to try to grapple with that. And it's a very difficult for her to grapple with that. And now this is an issue in our culture today, and we could spend five or six lessons talking about this dilemma. Right? How do we deal with a good God who's in control, yet there's evil in this world? And I don't want to get all the way into that today. But I do want to talk about um, how we see this normally get deconstructed. Right? I mean, normally, the, the world out there, anyone who's kind of challenging you on your faith, you know, to, to try to deal with this problem of a good God who's in control when bad things are happening, they'll try to kind of degrade one or two aspects of God. Either, either they'll say... God actually isn't in complete control of the situations, or they'll say God actually isn't good. Now, either of those decisions that we make about God create a God that I don't know if I want to worship or not, right? If if we're trying to worship a God who actually isn't in control of the universe, it's kind of hard for me to bring myself to worship in that kind of scenario. Or, conversely, worshiping a God who isn't good doesn't seem quite right either. We have to grapple with this. And so God gives us a tool that helps us grapple with that. Uh, And that tool is lament, right? How do we deal in these situations where we're trying to figure out how to uh, approach a situation where we are just in agony, we're we're grieving, we've we've had the world close in around us, we don't understand what is occurring, but we know God's in control and we know he's good, yet we're in a situation that is just tough, right? Absolutely tough. And if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of this happen. Right, a, a whole lot of this happened. So lament is when people recognize the promises of God. They recognize all these attributes of God, yet they're still in agony, and they want to air that grievance to God in a very healthy way. And, and as I read some of these passages, you'll, you'll know, uh, you'll, you, you've heard these things before. Psalm 10.1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, Psalm 13, 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Right? There, if you read the Psalms, which we all think of the Psalms as the basis of our hymnals where we sing in praise and worship to God, which is true, 
But a third of the Psalms are laments. They're people airing their grievances to God in a very faithful way. And it just seems like we never, ever teach that in the church. So I want to talk about this just really simply today. If you look at your handout, you're going to see that most laments, uh, lamentations, you know, have a structure, a very similar structure. And the very first structure, and I'll, I'll kind of show you how Naomi does this, but the very first thing you see in the structure is a cry out to God, people crying out to God. So people come before God, tears streaming, no pretending, being very authentic, and they're voicing their, the description of the pain and even the source of the pain with really, really vivid description directly to God, crying out to God in a situation. The second part of a lament is people asking for help, realizing that in the midst of the situation, I am not the one who is in control. I actually need help from God Almighty, asking God to rescue them for relief from the pain, uh, for salvation from our, for, from our enemies, you know, literally asking God for help. And then the third part of the lament, probably the most important part of the lament, is to go through and to respond in trust and praise. So refer back to God's character. Refer back to the promises of God that we know he has fulfilled. You know, we talked about that in that last lesson of Balaam. Why can we trust in the promises of God? Because we've seen them fulfilled over and over again. We can go back to those times when we, we, we know that God is a God who will fulfill every single promise. That's why you see so often in the Old Testament, you'll see people say, you are the God who brought our people out of Egypt. You know, they are reminding themselves of the promises of God. Or God himself will tell his people, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them of what he's done for them. We respond in trust and praise, and we call on our audience, whether it be our, just us or the people all around, all around us, to praise God, to worship him and praise him, knowing that even in the midst of pain and suffering, we can worship God. It's a great tool. Uh, this tool of lament is a really, really powerful tool for us to use in our daily lives. And I'll talk about in a minute just some situations we can use it in, but I, I want you guys to know that this is something that's, that's in your um, in your tool case, right? This is, this is something that we all need to have. We need to arm ourselves with as a tool to deal with these apparent contradictions as we go out and we live uh, in this world. Now, Naomi, getting back to the story of Ruth, she doesn't exactly practice the art of lament in the best way possible. There's all kinds of issues with what Naomi does in this text. Now, let's give her a little bit of the doubt. Like I said, she's grieving. She's got a lot going on. Uh, but, but we're not going to look at Naomi and say this is the perfect example of how to lament. But we see some good things in here. One thing we, we see normally in a healthy lament is that uh, people are speaking directly to God, right? They're airing their grievances directly to God, uh, and, and they're expressing hope in the fact that they're doing that with God. An unhealthy, unhealthy way to do this is to do this kind of like the people did as they were, the, the Israelites were doing as they were wandering in the wilderness during the whole exodus you know, they don't really air their grievances with God. They air their grievances with who, whatever man or authority figure is right next to them that they can talk to. They don't talk to the man himself. They talk to the person closest to them, and they complain, right? And, and we normally will see these cycles in the Bible where uh, when people are bitter and they openly express their issues with God and then they obey, that's a really true and raw form of faith. And that's what we see Naomi do here in this situation. She airs a grievance against God, probably not in the best possible way. But then what does she do? 
She keeps putting one foot in front of the other, and she returns to Bethlehem, to her people. She, she obeys the God to, to go to the land that he promised her. It's a small step of faith, but it's a step of faith, and it's a step of obedience. It's a step in the right direction. The difference is, whenever you air a grievance to God or an air a grievance about God to man, and then you go and your next step is to disobey, well, that's really rebellion, right? That's rebellion against God. So we've got to be careful with how we lament. Are we airing it directly to God and then following that up with obedience? So, so if we go through this, if, if, when we go through the rest of the story of Ruth, you could actually consider the rest of the story of Ruth as an answer to this lament of Naomi, right? If you, if you kind of comb through it all, you could see, you could really play this out and say, God heard Naomi's cries, right? He saw the pain she was in, and he concocted a pretty incredible, incredible series of events to actually answer the cries of Naomi. And we actually see a little hint of that right at the very end of this passage that we're studying. So if you read at the very end on verse 22, it says this. So Naomi returned. You know, like I said, that's, when we, remember last week we talked about that word return, kind of repentance, right? Naomi returned. She changed her direction and headed to Bethlehem. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. At the beginning of the barley harvest. There's a sense of hope that that immediate need they have of just providing for their daily food, they are coming back at the perfect time of the season to be there to be provided for. God is orchestrating these events. And we see that glimmer of hope right there at the end of the chapter one. And then chapter two is going to come next week. We're going to see a very big sense of hope in how God orchestrates these events. So I want you to take just a moment at your groups. And I want, to, I want you to talk about this thing called lament. And I want you to talk about in just practically in our culture today, in your lives today, when could you see situations pop up where you could use this as a tool? Talk about that for about 30, 45 seconds. But just, just to wrap up, because we're about out of time here today. You'll never, whenever I ask myself this question of when, when can I see examples in my life that, that lament would be a good tool, I can see examples in our communities. Um, I want you to think about when a school shooting occurs somewhere in the world. When, when, when we see those school shootings occur, my heart just cries out for God for help. Right? I mean, just it's, it's one of those... To, to lament in those situations is a perfect way to express our grievance to God, right? We know he's in control. We know he's a good God. We know he's ordering events, and, and we see these tragedies occur, and we just cry out for him for deliverance from, from these just apparent injustices, right? Uh, whenever you've lost someone close to you, whenever you, you, you're going through a, an ailment, whenever you feel like you need to curse God, which, which happens, I, I, everyone has that temptation, the tool we want to use instead of cursing God is to lament, right, to lament. I want you guys to learn this tool. I think it's very important that you actually practice this as something to build, like with muscle memory, because you're going to have something come up in your life, maybe today, maybe this week, maybe a month from now, a year from now, where you're going to need this tool, just like the people of Israel needed this tool for so long. And if you read the Old Testament and you read it with this mindset, you're going to see this come over and over and over again. So I'd ask you to do, if you can, if you're up for it, is this week, I'd like you everyone to write their own prayer of lament, following the structure we talked about. Keep it short, keep it simple. But the structure of crying out, for, crying out to God, asking for help, and responding in trust and praise. Crying out, ask for help, respond in trust and praise. 
and write your own prayer and pray that prayer to God. And if you're comfortable sharing it, send it to me, email it to me, and I'd be thrilled to pray that prayer of lament for you as well. And I want to end class, instead of ending with prayer, I want, to, I want to use probably my most favorite lamentation in the entire Bible, at least right now. You know, I hate to have favorite chapters and stuff like that, but, but the one I always go back to whenever I'm thinking about this is a bit of a long one. I just want to read it as our closing prayer. And this was a psalm that was written by David, uh, but then was recited about a thousand years later whenever Christ was dying on the cross. And we've all heard those words, Oh God, oh God, why have you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And Jesus says those words right there towards the end. And if you listen to Terry's Monday Thursday sermon, you'll hear how he explains it, saying that the, the, the Israelites at the time, they would have heard that, and they would have heard it like a, the first line to a song that we would hear on the radio. And in their heads, they would have connected the rest of this psalm from David because they knew the scripture so well. So I want you to hear this lament and imagine Christ on the cross connecting a thousand years of Israelite history just to see how powerful of a tool this is. And I'll read this, and then we'll be able to to head out for the day. So Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make, my, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like, like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. For he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when we cried to him. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him, praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it. Let that be our prayer this week.
write your prayer of lament this week. And if you feel comfortable, send it my way. Appreciate you, gentlemen.